Good morning. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. And we're going to cover verses 1 through 31, Lord willing. And uh, this sermon, just FYI, is probably not going to be as good as last week because I don't have any Oreos to give you. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so I, I apologize in advance. Thank you, Walt McCord, uh, for setting me up to fail, okay? Um, but before we get started, I'd, I'd love just to start our time in prayer um, because I realize that unless God moves in our hearts and our minds, uh, we won't get anything out of today. We might laugh a little bit. We might have some intriguing thoughts. Uh, but unless the Lord moves, those thoughts will be fleeting. But if the Lord does move then Nehemiah 10 has the capability to impact our very lives in a profound way. And so let's pray that God would do just that. Please bow with me. Well, Father God, we, we want to invite you to speak to our hearts today. We want to invite you to challenge us through your word. We want to invite you to do a work on us this morning, God so that we can be more like Jesus. We want to glorify you. We want to honor you. So we ask, would you move during this time? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, Dr. Warren Worsby, uh, a famous pastor and theologian who actually went home to be with the Lord this past May, uh, tells about a man in one of his devotional commentaries uh, who used to always end his prayers with the phrase, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, clean the cobwebs out of my life, amen. And one of the members in his church um, grew tired of hearing the same insincere prayer week in and week out because he saw no real life change in this man's life. So the next time he heard the man pray, Lord, clean the cobwebs out of my life, he interrupted and he said, amen, Lord. And if you would, please kill the dang spider. Dr. Worsby goes on to say that it's one thing to offer the Lord a passionate prayer of confession like we see in Nehemiah chapter 9. It's quite something else altogether to live an obedient life after we say the word amen. Before I transitioned into full-time ministry here at Wayside, uh, I was a full-time missionary in disguise as a football coach in the public school system. In one year, at the, at the beginning of football season, I had this one kid who I thought would be our quarterback. Uh, the problem was he had the reputation of being a knucklehead. And so in love, I pulled him aside one day and I said, listen, I got big plans for you this year. I want you to be one of the leaders of our team. But there's a problem. You have a reputation of being a drama queen and someone who is not willing to model leadership. And he responded, he said, no, no, coach, that was last year. Like, I'm, I'm different now. I want to lead. And I said, that's great. It's easy to talk the talk, but I want you to walk the walk and prove it to me through changed behavior. And this is someone I still keep in touch with today, and he thanks me for that challenge. It's the same thing in relationships. We only get a few I'm sorry's until that phrase loses its meaning because of our unwillingness to make behavioral change. When we sin against God, 
It's not sufficient enough just to say, I'm sorry. We've got to take it a step further and say, God, I'm sorry. Would you align my heart with yours and help me to prioritize the things which you prioritize? The people in chapter 10 are serious about change. In chapter 8, we see the people of God have conviction. Then in chapter 9, it goes to confession. And then in chapter 10, where we're at today, we're going to see covenant. These people are done playing games. They're determined by God's grace to live the life that he's called them to live. And this is super applicable for all of us here this morning. Because a big part of life is learning from our mistakes. You and I are going to mess up in this life. That's a guarantee. But the mark of a mature Christian is someone who learns from their mistakes and by God's grace makes the necessary changes in order to live a more righteous life. And that's what chapter 10 is all about. Now, if you were to read the Hebrew Bible, you would notice that chapter 10 actually starts in chapter 9, verse 38. So if we're going to read chapter 10 according to the Hebrew scriptures, we've got to start in chapter 9, verse 38, because that should actually be chapter 10, verse 1. You with me, clear as mud? All right, let's start in chapter 9, verse 38. It says this. Now, because of all of this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of the leaders, our Levites, and our priests. Stop there. (laughs) If we're going to understand this verse, we've got to understand what in the world happened in chapter 9. So let me recap for you real quick what Walt taught on last week. Nehemiah 9 is all about God's people coming together and focusing on the Lord with their whole selves, heart, mind, and body. In verses 5 through 38 of chapter 9 are written in the form of a prayer, and it's one of the longest prayers in all of the Bible. And as the people prayed and reflected on the character of God, it led them to want to change their lifestyle as they recognized their sin and their rebellion. And I would argue that this is the natural response for anyone who truly understands the person and work of God. When your mind is fixated on God, you will recognize his holiness and his holiness will break you down. Because if God is as holy and just and righteous as it says he is in the scriptures, then you and I don't stand a chance. There's no hope for us. But then when you keep reading and you come to understand that while God is holy and just, he is also gracious and compassionate. And while we all deserve death because of our sin, he offers us life because of his love. And when you get a taste of God's grace and compassion, you will naturally desire to pledge your life to him because he gives you that which you don't deserve. Uh, Lately on social media, Everybody has been going crazy about the conversion of Kanye West, (laughs) Um, who is married to Kim Kardashian. And if you're out of the loop and you'll know who those people are, it's probably a good thing. But um, if you Google them, just be careful. Okay, I'm not, I don't know what you're going to find. But anyways, Kanye, he's this famous rapper uh, who's lived a pretty rough life. Yet he just came out with a gospel album called Jesus is King. And he's proclaiming the name of Jesus and everybody on Facebook and their mother is going nuts. 
I mean, who would have thought that a few years ago that I'd be jamming to Kanye in my truck with my toddlers in the back seat as a pastor, okay? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. But what's funny is that there are Christians that are absolutely befuddled and fascinated about how a guy like Kanye could come to know the Lord. And it's kind of weird to me because I'm like, man, if this befuddles you, then you don't really understand the gospel. It's not hard for me to believe at all that God could change someone like Kanye because I know firsthand that he's changed a guy like me. And I don't know Kanye's heart, but I know mine. And I know all too well the wicked thoughts that have gone through my head. And I'm all too familiar with the wicked things that I've done. Yet even in my sin, even when I deserve nothing but punishment, God showed me grace. And he offered me forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And now because of Jesus, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because my identity is now rooted in the finished work of the cross. So it's not shocking to me when I hear broken people like Kanye coming to know Jesus because I'm like, that's just who God is. He's abounding in grace and compassion and he is eternally faithful to those who trust in him. And once you get a taste of God's grace and compassion, you will naturally desire to commit your allegiance to him and pledge your life to God. And that's what the Jewish people do in this passage. They make a pledge. They put it in writing. And they declare, we're going to follow God and live according to his design. The Hebrew word for writing, or literally to cut, is a term that's closely associated with covenant language that is used in passages like Genesis 15, 18, where God himself swore a covenant to Abram, promising to him a land where his descendants would reside. And ultimately, God promised that it would be through Abram's seed that a savior would come in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who would provide hope for all people. But it's important to note that this covenant with Abram was not some agreement by equal parties. No, this agreement was by a superior God with an inferior Abram. God swore this covenant to Abram upon himself. He said, I'm going to make you a great name. I'm going to give you a land. And Abram, even though you and your wife are barren, I'm going to give you more descendants than you could ever dream of because I'm God and I do what I want and that's what I've decided to do. You've been chosen. And all Abram had to do was believe and it was credit to him righteousness. And over the course of biblical history, the Jewish people would rebel and lose fellowship and blessing with God. But because of the unconditional covenant made to Abram, restoration was always possible. Restoration was always possible. Because Genesis 15 wasn't some contract, it was covenant. Contracts are based off of performance. But covenant is based off of relationship. You see the difference? Let me give you an example. I can choose not to act like a dad. I can foolishly neglect my daughters, but I can never run from the reality that I am a dad. I can, 
I can't wake up one day and say, I don't really want to be a dad today. I mean, I can pretend. But the truth is, even when I don't feel like it, even when I blow it, even when I'd rather do something else, I can't escape it. It is who I am. I'm a husband. I'm a father. It's my identity. And it's the same thing with covenant. Covenant is about relationship. Covenant is about identity. When God made a covenant with Abram, he graciously chose to enter a relationship with him. He said, Abram, you're mine, and we're going to have this special bond. I'm not just going to be your God. I'm going to be your friend, and you and your people can run from me, but I will always be your God, and you will always be my people because I'm committed to your good because I've sworn myself to you. And the beautiful thing about God is when he makes a covenant with you, It's permanent. You can't get out of it. Civil rights leader John Perkins calls God the hound of heaven. Once he's called you, he won't stop pursuing you until you're his. And once he's got a hold of your heart, he won't ever let it go. That's what John 10 is all about. For those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, we are now participants with God And what the Bible calls the new covenant, which you can read about in Jeremiah 31. And as new covenant believers, we are graciously referred to, as 1 John 3 puts it, children of God. And once you become a child, you can't undo that. You can't undo that. For those of you that trust in Christ, you can't say, well, I don't deserve to be his child. Too bad. Once you're a child, you're a child. And the beautiful thing about covenant is once you've entered into covenant with God, renewal and restoration is always possible, which is why there's hope for you and me this morning. The past couple of years, I've been, I've been teaching my kids how to swim. And uh, my daughter Avery, when she was first learning how to jump in the water, I'd get in the water and she'd stand next to the pool and she'd yell at me. She'd say, Daddy, don't move. Do not move. I bet, girl, like, I'm, I'm right here. Like, you can, I'm not moving. And then she would, she would just keep doing it over and over. Dad, don't move. Don't go anywhere. I'm like, girl, I'm, I'm, I don't know how to convince you. you know? I, I'm not moving. I'm right here. And she would just do this over and over and over again. And she would hesitate and hesitate and hesitate. But as her dad, I was always right there. I was going to be there as long as she needed me to be there until she finally took that step of faith. Trust me and jump. Over the course of biblical history, the Jewish people would hesitate in their relationship with God. They hesitated. God would say, come trust me, child. I've got good plans for you. And they would just, uh, they'd have a hard time. But the reason why the Jewish people are even able to renew their allegiance to the Lord is because the Lord is unconditionally committed to them. The Jewish people struggled, but God was always right there waiting for them. I'm right here, child. Whenever you're ready to jump, come on. And for those of us who trust in Christ, the same thing is true for us today. Because of the covenant that God has made with us through Christ, covenant renewal is always possible. No matter what, Ephesians 1.13 says that God has sealed believers with the Holy Spirit who is a pledge of your authentic, eternal relationship with God. For those of you, which I think is a lot of you, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God ain't moving. 
It's not moving. And like my daughter, he'll wait for us as long as we need to, to jump and fully trust him. Uh, For some of you, you're here this morning, you've been running from God for a long time. You're his, you know Jesus, but you've been running. And I just want to encourage you, it's time to jump. It's time to take a step of faith and start walking with God again this morning. Uh, For others of you, um, that may need to happen for the very first time today. God's calling you. Even now as I'm talking, you feel this stirring in your heart. You know there's something more than this world can offer. And God is offering you covenant relationship. Christ has died for your sins because he loves you. And if you will trust him and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be ushered in to the family of God. You will be granted new life and he'll forgive you of all of your sins and he'll give you a new hope that will never disappoint. Will you jump? If you're here this morning, you haven't trusted in Jesus, will you take that step of faith? Covenant relationship with God is available for you today. God's already done all the hard work. All you gotta do is believe. But the people in this passage, they're ready to jump. They're ready to renew a right relationship with God. They are determined by God's grace to live lives that please the Lord. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is how do we know whether or not their dedication to the Lord was real? Like how do we know whether or not their pledge was authentic? Like how do we know it was legit? Well, the way you figure out if something's legit or not is by doing what Jesus commands us to do. You examine the fruit Because as Matthew 7 talks about, good trees will produce good fruit and bad trees will produce bad fruit. And as we examine chapter 10, I'm going to argue that we're going to find three evidences, which I believe showcase that these people authentically desire to live lives that please the Lord. I think they honestly wanted to change. Why do I believe that? Well, because if someone is truly serious about change, it will be evidenced by how they go about renewing their priorities. Let me repeat that. If someone is truly serious about change, it will be evidenced by how they go about renewing their priorities. If there is no renewal of priorities, then it's obvious that we weren't really serious about change. It's like saying, I'm sorry, but refusing to address the harmful behavior. But I believe the Jewish people in chapter 10 were serious because of the following three evidences. Number one, they submitted to the word of God. That's chapter 10, verse 29. Number two, they separated themselves as the people of God. That's verse 28 along with verses 30 and 31. And number three, they supported the house of God. That's verses 32 through 39, which Pastor Roger is going to preach about next week. But these people were serious about change. And they're like, let's put this in writing. And then verses 1 through 27 are all the signatures of the people. And no, I'm not going to read it. (laughs) Roger will gladly do it next week. (laughs) I'm just joking. Love you, Roger. Listen, you can talk a big game, but once you put something in writing... And once you sign your name, it's on. 
Don't sign the dotted line until you've read the fine print. Because your signature verifies that you agree with all of the terms. These people meant business. So they signed their names. And guess whose name is up top? Nehemiah. Because that's what good leaders do. They don't require other people to do what they're not willing to do first. It's easy to preach. It's much harder to model. But then the rest of these signatures are the political, religious, and economic leaders of the community. You've got the priest signatures. That's verses 1 through 8. You've got the Levites. That's verses 9 through 13. And then you've got others who are called the leaders of the peoples. That's verses 14 through 27. But then I want you to take notice of verse 28. I'm going to summarize a little bit, but you can look at it. It says this. The rest of the people, all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding, joined together with their kinsmen to take an oath. Essentially, they erected a written monument, much like the founding documents that made the United States of America. This document establishes their purpose. It establishes their values. Essentially, what the Jewish people are doing right here is they say, we don't care if anyone else in the world lives by this. We are going to live by it. Their philosophy in life was not going to be dictated by the world. Rather, it was going to be dictated by the Lord. You catch that? It's similar to what Joshua says in Joshua 24, 15, where Joshua gathers a rebellious people and he was like, hey, if you don't want to follow God and you want to go after these foreign gods, knock yourself out. But as for me and my household, we are going to serve the Lord. Church, can I remind you that we are living in dark times. Do not let the world put its spell on you. Now more than ever, the church needs to take a stand. And it starts in the home. There's no Sunday school program in the world that can ever replace the impact of parents who lead in a Christ-like manner. There ain't a Sunday school program in the world that can replace parents who love their children in a Christ-like way. My home is the single greatest influence on my family. I can delegate responsibilities at work. I cannot delegate the responsibility of my family. It's easy to get up and preach a big game. It's easy for you to serve righteously on Sunday mornings. It's something else altogether to lead with the same amount of righteous vigor at home. And I'm preaching to myself right now too. I'm right there with you. I've got a lot of work to do to be a better father, to be a better husband. It's difficult being a good parent. It's difficult being a good spouse. There ain't no secret formula. I don't got an A plus B equals C for you. It just takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a whole lot of grace. But I want to invite, like I want to invite all the parents and families this morning to join me just in making a pledge in your hearts to once again anchor our families in the Lord. Anchor our families in the Lord. It's our job to leave a godly legacy. We can all grow. So consider with me, what are some practical ways? What are some practical ways that we can prioritize the Lord once again in our family life? And let's hold each other accountable to that. What are some practical ways 
we can prioritize the Lord once again in our family life. A couple years ago, uh, my wife and I went to a conference called Weekend to Remember, which is a marriage conference put on by crew here in town. It's actually nationwide. I highly recommend it. And one thing that they do at this conference is they have you restate your, your vows to your spouse, which is a pretty powerful moment. Because it's one thing to say your vows on your wedding day before all the troubles and conflict come. <laughs> it's another thing altogether to renew those vows years later after, you, after you've fallen time and time again. And I remember when it was, when it was my, my turn to say my vows to Rach, like I had tears in my eyes and I could, I could barely even get the words out because I knew that I had not lived up to my role as a husband at times. And I had so much to improve. And there isn't a husband or a father or a mom or a wife in the world who thinks that they don't have to improve, okay? Like, I've never met a husband who's been like, you know what, I've arrived, okay? Um, I, don't, I don't need to improve anymore. Like, if you ever do meet a husband who says that, you, in the name of Jesus, just clock them, okay? <laughs> clock them. Your pastor told you so, okay? Um, because we can all improve, everybody. <laughs> but here's the deal. God doesn't expect me to be perfect, but he does expect me to be faithful. He doesn't expect me to be perfect, but he does expect me to be faithful. I love that girl. I'm committed to her. We made a covenant 10 years ago, and by God's grace, we're going to renew that covenant for the rest of our lives because he's called us to be faithful. I know some of you are here this morning, and like, your marriage is barely hanging on. Like you're here and maybe you're even with, with your spouse or maybe you're not, but like you, you're barely hanging on to your marriage this morning. And I just want to lovingly encourage you as your brother in Christ that if you're still hanging on, keep, keep hanging on. Don't give up. There's still hope. It's going to take a lot of hard work, but you can take some steps of faith and God will give you all the grace you need. So reach out to, to us. Reach out to the pastors. We'll, we'll do all we can to help you. Okay, but I just want to encourage, if there's anybody here, if there's couples, and you're barely hanging in there, keep hanging in there. Okay, our God's good. And there's a lot more I can say about that, but I'm going to stop because I've got to keep going. Um, but it's interesting that in verse 29, it says that they took upon themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord and his ordinances and statutes. Basically, they say, if we don't fulfill our end of the bargain of this oath, then may we be cursed, which sounds pretty extreme. But that's essentially what Deuteronomy 28 states, which side note, um, you are never going to understand the Old Testament if you don't understand Deuteronomy 28. Okay, so if you got time... Open your Bible, Deuteronomy 28, put a big star next to it, okay? Because if you don't understand Deuteronomy 28, you're going to have a really hard time understanding the rest of the Bible. But in a nutshell, what Deuteronomy 28 states is if God's people obey the Lord and obey his commands as laid out in the Mosaic law, then they would experience blessing. But if they disobeyed the Lord, then they would experience the Lord's discipline or his cursing. 
And so in verse 29, the people of God are once again aligning themselves with the word of God. And one of the things the law explicitly states is that there should be no intermarriage with the surrounding nations. That's what verse 30 is talking about. Marriage with non-Jewish people was clearly forbidden in the scriptures. Exodus 34, 12 through 16, Deuteronomy 7, 3, Joshua 23, 12. It's all over the place. Marriage with non-Jewish people was clearly forbidden. And the natural question that comes up is what's wrong with intermarrying? Why would God make such a ludicrous command? Well, the problem with intermarriage with the peoples of the lands is that the peoples of the lands didn't follow or believe in the one true God. They were idolaters. And they would naturally tempt the Jewish people to forsake their God and follow after false idols. And this happened all of the time. As you read through the Old Testament, you'll see kings that were falling after God, but then they would marry foreign wives and their hearts would be led astray to chase after these other gods. And I would say that the same thing is happening today in the church, which you can read about in depth in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 where Paul argues with passionate intensity, where he very clearly says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. But many Christians don't abide by this. They're like, well, the most important thing is love. Like as long as we love each other, that's all that matters. And we can work things out. But I'd say this is impossible to do apart from faith. The problem with that line of thinking is God is not too concerned with whether or not your marriage is going to work out. Rather, what he wants us to ask ourselves before we enter into a covenant with another human being is will this marriage best glorify God and fulfill his will and purpose for marriage? That's what he wants us to ask. Because as we see in Ephesians 5, 21 through 32, marriage is supposed to be a representation of the relationship between God and his people. It's supposed to be an image of the gospel and you can't do that apart from faith in Christ. God is not trying to withhold any good thing from us. He knows what's best for us. And he says, if you want to experience the beauty and fullness of marriage, then marriage needs to be between a man and a woman. And y'all need to be united through your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't care what the world says. That's what God says. If you're married in here, I just want to invite you to join me in renewing your commitment to accurately displaying the love seen between Christ and the church. Go on a date. Your pastor's making you. Go on a date and ask each other those questions. How can we better imitate this type of love? If you're not married, I beseech you in the name of Jesus to stand firm and commit yourself to marrying only someone who is truly united with you in the worship of the one and true living God. By faith in Jesus Christ. I'm begging you. But that's what the Jewish people did. 
they surrendered themselves to God's word and they take an oath not to intermarry. And then lastly, in verse 31, and we'll wrap it up after this, it says that the people of God vowed to honor the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. Because similar to marriage, God called the Jewish people to do business in a set apart way. That would be a testimony to the nations of their trust in God. You see, keeping the Sabbath was an evidence of faith. Keeping the Sabbath was a declaration of trust in Yahweh. You don't keep the Sabbath apart from faith. You're not going to forego a productive day of work unless you believe that resting in the Lord is better than being productive on your own. The nations would be like, man, what are you doing? Like you're wasting all of this money by not working. And Israel was supposed to say, no, God's got us. <laughs> We're going to trust him. And Chick-fil-A says, what's up? Okay. <laughs> but then imagine the absurdity of the sabbatical year. Year seven rolls around and a man is not to work on his land for a whole year. <laughs> he was not to till, plant, sow or harvest. He was to do nothing in the way of farming. I mean, it is crazy. Many of us would have an identity crisis if we couldn't work for a year. But check it, God's not done yet. It gets even crazier. Along with the Sabbath year is the consequential obligation to cancel debts. Meaning when the seventh year rolled around, a money a man owed wasn't owed anymore. It didn't matter if you're wicked Lazy, your debt was cleared. You wouldn't do this if you didn't trust in God. And it was a tremendous testimony to their neighbors. What about us? When people examine our lives, is it evident that we trust the Lord? Look at your workplace, look at your home, look at how you worship, and ask yourself Am I really distinct? Could a person get to know the real me and see trust in the Lord on display? I think Romans 14 makes it really clear that we're no longer bound by the Mosaic law to keep the Sabbath since we're now under the new covenant. But the principle of the Sabbath rest still applies. The principle of the Sabbath is that the people of God would stop working in order to intently and thoughtfully consider the person and work of God. Is there time set aside in your life to thoughtfully consider the Lord on a regular basis? If so, high five, keep going. (laughs) If not, if you're like, man, I don't know the last time I've just sat down and thought about the Lord. Well, what's stopping you from doing that today and starting a new habit? Well, we've talked about a lot, so I'm going to finish with one last thought. If, you, if you've checked out, check back in. <laughs> check back in. No hard feelings. <laughs> Church, because of the finished work of the cross, because of God's covenant vow towards you and I, for those of us that have made Jesus our trust, renewal is always possible. Renewal is always possible. Let that sink in. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, where it talks about how God's compassion and mercy is new every single morning. 
which means that right now, even as we sit in this place, God's mercy and his compassion is there for you, meaning there's new opportunity for, for us to change. It's a marvelous truth. Whether you're 16 years old or whether you're 67 years old, you can start over because of God's compassion. Renewal is available for you this morning. If your heart's beating in your chest and you've got breath in your lungs, then you can change. I love organizations like, like Alcohol Anonymous and treatment facilities like La Hacienda. Because I feel like so many of those people in these recovery programs, they get grace. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. And the church should take note. Just walking in the door at an AA meeting is a statement. Just showing up for the meeting is a declaration to everyone there. Hey, I'm not okay. I need some help. And if walking through the door wasn't enough, they say, hey, cool, put on this name tag. And you put on a name tag, and then you have to introduce yourself. And you say, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. Or in other words, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I've got a problem that I can't fix. And if God doesn't do something, I'm not going to get any better. But I haven't lost any hope yet, so I'm standing here at this meeting. What if the church, what if the church lived that out? And if you ever go to one of these treatment facilities, they're one of the most freeing and one of the most vulnerable places that you will ever experience because people there are finally done putting on the mask. They're done playing games and they're saying, I want help. And healing is happening all the time because of their willingness to do so. Three things they're doing at these treatment facilities I think is applicable for all of us. Number one, they acknowledge that they're broken. They're done masking it. They're saying, I'm broken. Go ahead, proclaim it to the world. But number two is they're viewing their brokenness through the lens of the cross, which means that God ain't done with them yet. And then in light of the cross, they make a pledge to take the necessary steps that they need to take in order to experience some restoration. And my question for all of us is, what about us? What parts of our lives are broken? What parts of our lives don't align with God's word? If you're sitting here like, well, nothing. I can't relate with you. <laughs> We're all work in progress. What aspects of your life need to change? And are you willing? Are you willing to put a stake in the ground and saying, God, I, I know I can't do this by myself, but with your help, I'll do whatever you call me to do. And will you jump and take that step of faith and say, God, I'm ready. Would you help me? I'm tired of being a hypocrite. I'm tired of being fake. Would you, would you help me to take that step, God? And I just want to encourage you, like maybe this morning you can do what Nehemiah 10, what they do, and just write it down. Write it down. There's something powerful that happens when you write something down. Write down. What, what is it that you want? to change in your life. And then, Nehemiah 10, they didn't do this by themselves. They did it together collectively as a group. So then go show it to somebody you trust and say, hey, this is in my life. I hate it. And I don't want to be like this anymore. Will you help me to grow and start holding each other accountable? Church, if we'll do that, we'll experience healing like we've never experienced before in our lives. But you got to take that step of faith. There's compassion this morning. There's mercy that's available for you. Will you grab it? And trust your God. 
Renewal is possible because our God is unconditionally committed to us. You know that, church? It ain't about your performance. It's about the performance that happened on the cross. And that work is finished. Your identity is sealed. So walk with him. Okay? Would you join me in prayer? Well, Father God, we, we are reminded once again this morning that we do not have it all figured out. And we are still a work in progress. But we come before you again with hope, knowing that you are a good God. You are abounding in grace and compassion. You are forever faithful to your people. And once we're yours, we're yours. And you'll never give up on us. God, would you help us to take a step of faith this morning to trust you more with our lives so that we can be a testimony to the world and be pleasing to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.